It's so good to have the Wilsons with us this morning and a whole River People reunion thing going on. They're the same family. That's why they're allowed on the same row. Um, those of you who are doing the math on the social distancing. So it is really great to have you guys this morning. Um, and I do want to say a final amen to Lottie Moon offering challenge. Uh, we still have time to kind of prepare ourselves and our budgets and our Christmas budgets. Please make that a significant gift. The challenge was to make it as significant a gift as you would spend on anyone else in your family. And I, I found that to be fairly convicting. And so I hope you will get in on that as well. And um, it'll bless the nations that the gospel continues to go out whether we're able to be present among the river people or not, the Lord is at work, and so we trust Him with that. Today, if you're a guest for the first time with us, uh, either online or in person, today is one of, kicks off one of my favorite parts of the year. It's, it's this rhythm in our church life where we explore the amazing reality of the incarnation of Jesus, Advent. Um, the, the idea that God became a man, that the eternal Son of God permanently assumed a body just like yours so that he could save and rescue each of us. Uh, so we celebrate that every year over a period of about four Sundays. I hope that these four Sundays will just kind of refresh your perspective on life and happiness and the holiday season really from a distinctly Christian perspective and that the gospel would begin to infuse those you know this time of year for you in a way that maybe it has not in the past so so here's our plan our plan um, in January is to study the book of Isaiah the great majestic massive Old Testament book of prophecy some have spoken of Isaiah as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. We're going to start that in January. And as we were putting our thoughts together and kind of processing what Advent would look like, it hit us some of the best, amazing, you know, messianic passages in the Bible are where? In the book of Isaiah. So what we want to do is kind of set things up this morning and then let Advent, uh, we'll frame Advent with these, uh, with three classic messianic text Isaiah chapter 4 where he is the branch of the Lord and of his rule it will spread over the whole world chapter 9 of Isaiah he's the wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace uh, in chapter 11 the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him so so these classic references to the Messiah will will frame up for us this this um, you know the book of Isaiah and where we're going and where it's headed. I'm sorry, guys. I'm totally distracted here on what's going on. All right, bear with me. Um, so, does that make sense? We're going to start. We're going to start today. Today is going to be both an intro to Advent and to the whole book of Isaiah. I hope it'll serve both of those purposes. So, start in chapter one, verse one, Isaiah, chapter one, and verse one. And as I read the first four verses. I want you to watch for this idea that God is the Holy One of Israel. That God Himself is the Holy One of Israel. So listen for that as I read verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah chapter 1, great Old Testament prophecy. 
The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. This is what Isaiah spoke. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and are utterly estranged. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and are utterly estranged, separated. I only have two points today. (laughs) Don't say amen. I only have two points today. Here's the first one. God is the Holy One of Israel. God is the Holy One of Israel. One of the most prominent themes that you will see as we study Isaiah is the theme that God is a king. So for example, he's the great king that Israel needs that runs, that runs throughout the whole book of Isaiah. He's the holy, holy, holy king, thrice holy in Isaiah 6. He's the redeemer king in chapter 33. He's the shepherd king in chapter 40. He's the king of Israel in chapter 44. He's the warrior king in 59. And he's the king of all nations in numerous chapters of the book of Isaiah. You will see this theme running throughout the book that God is the great king that Israel needs. So when you get to verse 1 of chapter 1 of Isaiah with this in mind, you can't just read verse 1 as a historical timestamp. Isaiah is prophesying during these kings and sort of move on. History of Bible over. Now there's more going on than that. There's more going on than that. This is the vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of these kings. These kings of Judah who were utterly inadequate to represent the king God himself. Because that's always the picture that was at work in the Bible. That the king should represent God as holy and perfect and beautiful king. So it is subtle in verse 1, but immediate. It's subtle, but it's immediate that that the earthly kings of Judah point to the great king. And and that becomes clear as you move in through verses 2, 3, and 4. Because you've got Isaiah speaking this prophecy about, look at the language. These are my children. I have reared them. These are my people, verse 3. This is a sinful nation. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. This is all... Uh, language of God's reign uh, over his people. And so by the time you kind of get moving in the first chapter of Isaiah, already the Holy One of Israel, that expression, the Holy One of Israel, is loaded with meaning. So mark that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, in verse 4. It's loaded with meaning. It does not mean that God is like some holy monk in the desert wandering around by himself. That's not what the Holy One of Israel means. It means God is the holy, perfect, sovereign 
king, the one who reigns over his monarchy beautifully and perfectly, okay? Have you seen Hamilton, the Broadway production? Hamilton is one of our, it's been out for a few years now, one of our favorites. Uh, I'm a total Hamilton fan. I came a little bit late to the party, I must confess. What did I miss? <laughs> Couldn't resist that. Uh, but I did come a little late to the party. Um, and so I'm just now getting on board. Karis is like, Dad, it's been out for three years, you know? But my, one of my favorite characters is King George. Not because he's a virtuous man, right? King George is anything but a virtuous man. Um, and, but he's such a convincing character, don't you? Do, do you like King George? Some of you like him? No, some of you hate him? But when push comes to shove... I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da 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 da. Everybody. <laughs> okay, no, not gonna do it. Okay, so, so here's the thing: Washington and Burr and Madison and Hamilton have every reason in the world to come out from under the authority of King George. This is not just a moment. This is a movement. This is a revolution. The reverse is the case in Isaiah. Exactly the reverse is the case in Isaiah because Israel has no good reason. Listen, Israel has no good reason to come out from under the authority of God as king. God cares perfectly, executes justice righteously, reigns as a perfect loving monarch and does so amazingly. The earthly kings of Israel, especially Ahaz, who's marked in this first verse, the earthly kings of Israel were more like King George than King Yahweh. And this book is going to teach us about what it would look like if God was truly king of his people. So listen, look again, in, in, drop down to verse 21 of this. So we're still in the first chapter. Drop down to verse 21 and look at Isaiah's indictment on the city and its leaders. Speaking of kings and princes and leaders, drop down to verse 21 of chapter 1, how this faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice no longer. Righteousness was lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. The leadership of God's people were, were corrupt. Everyone loves a bribe. They don't bring justice to the fatherless. This is a, a, a strong indictment against against Judah and against Jerusalem, its capital city, and against the leaders who were supposed to be embodying the righteousness of God, supposed to be uh, earthly representatives of this beautiful, righteous reign of God, and they're not. And so, not only is the book of Isaiah going to be marked by a theme, God is king, but it's also going to be marked by a second theme, watch this, of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope will be the pattern of the book of Isaiah. So if you're looking for a tip of the day, the tip of the day on reading Isaiah is watch 
because if you're reading along and you lose concentration, you might slip from a judgment section right into a hope section and not even realize it happened. Because that's the way he, that's the way his prophecy unfolds. Or you might find yourself in a hope passage and not realize how you got there. So watch for this. There, the whole book of Isaiah uh, is, is, you will see frequently recurring alternating pattern between judgment and hope. Um, I wanna show you that just as a little experiment before we go too far. So look at verses 12 through 15. That's a judgment section. Verse 16 starts what? A hope section, a short glimpse of hope. It's there, it's not as long, but it's there. It's very meaningful. You'll see this over and over again in the whole book, especially the first, uh, especially the first half. So, for example, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, your, mo- your new moons, and, and, and I'm in dropping down to verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, these recurring spiritual habits, uh, I hate them now. They, they're not for you what they should be. They're not real worship. I've become weary of you saying you're worshiping me. You're a hypocrite. You're lying. You're deceiving me. My soul hates that. When you spread out your hands, verse 15, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make prayers, I will not listen. So the picture is Israel is, is like this, spreading out their hands in prayer to God. And God says, I will not hear you because you're playing a game with me. And you don't play games with the Holy One of Israel. Your hands are full of blood, verse 15. Complicit, guilty, false worship. That judgment section is then immediately followed by a glimpse of hope because in Isaiah, mark this down, judgment is never the last word. There's hope coming. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. The hope is in repentance. The hope is in the gospel. The hope is in forgiveness. The hope is in returning to Yahweh. So wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Look at verse 18. You know this is famous. Look at verse 18. Come, think rationally about your sin. And come to me, God says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient. In Isaiah's gospel, the hope, in Isaiah's, it is a gospel. In Isaiah's prophecy, the hope is, is grounded in confession, repentance, and returning to God. It's a beautiful call and really beautiful imagery about how a person could receive forgiveness. Uh, Parenthetical note, if you're seriously thinking about Christianity for the first time today and listening to this and kind of processing this, considering the faith and who God is and how he makes it possible for us to return to him, this passage is so uh, could, be, could really be meaningful to you. You and I don't bring anything to the table. We come with confession. That's what we bring. That really is a picture of the hope of Christianity. That God would 
do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Though our hands are stained, though our garments are stained like crimson, they could be like brand new beautiful wool clothes and spotless. Only by God's mercy and grace could that be pronounced. So you're going to see this pattern of, of judgment and hope over and over again. Keep it in mind. Now, here's the other thing that's really cool about the book of Isaiah. And you probably, many of you probably know this. You've studied it before. Um, not only does Isaiah have this vision of God as king and holy and, and other and transcendent, but he also describes the way in which God is going to bring that righteous reign down to the earth in a person. Like Isaiah does this as well or better than any other prophecy in the Bible because he's going to describe the messianic prince. He's going to describe the righteous suffering servant. He's going to describe him as the, the warrior king. All three messianic references only, I think, reasonably fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The only person who can be what Isaiah talks about, really, fully and truly, is Jesus of Nazareth, who the apostles of the New Testament say, he's the one. So let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke chapter one, uh, and I think Luke might have even been the one who read. Luke, did you read from Luke this morning? Who read from Luke this morning? Nora, okay, well, Luke confused me because that's your name, okay. So Nora, Nora Kate read this. I wanna show you, I wanna show you how the apostles get there. Why the apostles write the whole New Testament. The New Testament is written as an expression, as a statement of testimony that Jesus Christ is the fulfilled Messiah that Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the other prophets were talking about. So let me just give you a, uh, a link to that from chapter one and let's see, where do we wanna pick up in chapter one? Let's go to verse 30. Luke chapter one, verse 30. So Luke has written his gospel. He's describing the nativity of Christ, how Christ comes into the world and he's, and he's describing that the angel has spoken to Mary and said, don't be afraid, you found favor with God. We really do believe that happened. Verse 31. And behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So he's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Listen to that kingdom language. This is the Most High. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the one who inherits the throne of David. There's a kingdom that he's going to reign over. And then drop down to verse 35. How's this going to happen? The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow and therefore the child to be born will be called holy. Mark that. Holy. The child is going to be holy. The Son of God. So that brings us to point number two. 
that the New Testament itself is written to corroborate, to confirm, to make a case for Jesus Christ as the embodied Holy One of Israel. Israel did not know their king in an embodied, you know, like as a person walking around. They didn't, they didn't know God as king in that way. They knew David as king in that way. They knew Hezekiah as king in that way. They didn't know God himself as king in that way until Jesus comes to embody the kingdom and to be like able, capable, willing, and worthy to be entrusted with a throne. And yet he's a humble king, which we've been singing about. And he doesn't do the same thing in his first advent as he will in his second advent, right? So in Luke's gospel, you've got all this language that ties Jesus to the Holy One of Israel. Why? So as to say, Jesus is the coming king. Like, he's the coming king. And this is what the apostles teach. It's what they work out in the New Testament. And... It's what we believe and celebrate every Advent that Jesus Christ is the true King of Israel. It starts in His first Advent. We're living between His comings, first and second coming. And we long for His return. So over the next three weeks, what we want to do is explore these three famous Messianic passages. Chapter 4, He's the branch of the Lord. Chapter 5, Prince of Peace. I'm sorry, chapter 9, Prince of Peace. And then chapter 11, the perfect king. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him. So, so to kind of wrap things up, turn to chapter 11. And let me throw one other thing out here as we start to circle the airport. Come in for a landing. So we're going to do chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 11. Chapter 11 will be our third installment on the Messiah in these next few weeks. We're also, as we move toward chapter 11, we've invited you to memorize this, the first nine verses. We're doing one through nine. Am I saying that right, Pastor Chip? We're going to do the first nine verses together as a church. So start on verses 1 and 2 this week, and then we'll do 3 and 4 the next week, and so on, and try to build over the next several weeks, uh, really hiding God's Word, in our hearts um, from the book of Isaiah to try to tie all this together for us. So Isaiah 11, one through nine, we're gonna do some scripture memory and I wanna invite you to do that with us. Now, tricks are for kids, right? Isn't that the serial, tricks are for kids? Do you remember that? Scripture memory is just for kids, right? No, scripture memory is not just for kids. So what I wanna do is invite you, all the adults in the room, I want to invite you to join us in hiding God's word in your heart. I think it will profoundly change the way you look at this Christmas and this Advent season. If you meditate on it, memorize it, some of you will say, I'm not good at memory work. I can't remember stuff. I'm not good at it. Um, and therefore, you'll just kind of not, not get in on that. I want to encourage you to, to not think that way. I want to encourage you to 
practice, rehearse, memorize with us anyway. See how the Lord will uh, help you to set your mind on things that are good and noble and true and right and, and, and let that, just do the, do the best that you can with it because you know where your, the, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also, right? So if you treasure God's word, I think you'll, you'll be able to remember it more and you'll get more clarity. And so I just wanna encourage you, do it anyway, get in on this with us. It's gonna, let me say one final thing about this. No other habit in the Christian life has been more helpful to me personally than memorizing God's word, than meditating on it, memorizing it, writing it out, rehearsing it, saying it out loud, having a friend listen, and, and we kind of partner with that scripture memory, uh, say it to each other, and just get some gospel talk going. It's so valuable. No other spiritual discipline, uh, I don't know if this has been true for some of you, but no other spiritual discipline has helped me as much as memorizing God's word. And so I want to commend it to you. Scripture memory work, not just for kids. It's going to be a huge blessing to you. So all that said, this past week, I started into Isaiah 11. And look at verse, are you with me in Isaiah 11? Look at verse 3. This man, this messianic, this, this, this person, this man, this messianic figure, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You see that line? So it's gonna take a little while, but you start memorizing this passage. This might happen to you. It hit me this week that the Messiah is not deceived by appearances. And I needed that this week, personally. And I didn't even know it was coming. Like that's how scripture, that's how meditating on God's word and bringing it into your life works. I, I realized, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait you're, being easily you're being easily deceived by what you're seeing and listening. The Messiah is not easily deceived by outward appearances or what he hears on first blush. Don't you want to be more like Christ? Yes, I want to be more like Christ. So this is all going on internally in my life. Don't you want to be more like Christ and, and, and more like the one who, who's, whose life is like this? And so immediately, hiding God's word in my heart became incredibly practical at the street level because I was judging some situation or context. And here it is coming alive from God's word. And you just can't, you can't do any better than that. So what we're gonna do is just keep pressing Isaiah 11, one through nine into our lives this holiday season, focus on the Messiah during Advent and ask the Lord to uh, just teach us what it would be like to live under a perfect king. I don't wanna live under King George. Do you want to live under King? I don't want to live under King George. No, we live in a country that said we don't want to live under King George. But I do want to live under, do, do you, right? This is the question. Do you want to live under the amazing, perfect, loving, righteous King Jesus? That's the question today. Because I think everybody longs for a king. I think everybody longs for a king. Everybody longs for an authority figure that they can trust, who's benevolent, who will care, who will lead well, who will execute perfect justice. People, longing, people are longing for that. People are all the time looking for that hero. He's right here, God says. 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the perfect embodiment of the Holy One of Israel. He's the perfect king. He's the one we can trust. He's the one we can entrust our lives to. So we're gonna sing about him again. And uh, the song we're singing is about a humble king because he comes and turns the way the world operates upside down. He comes in great humility. And he's a king worthy of our worship. So let's pray. And then we're gonna sing and we're learning. Thank, Sue, thank you for teaching us this new song. And um, we wanna ask the Lord to let it be our prayer this morning. So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna keep learning this new hymn that celebrates Christ, our humble king. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we are so glad that Jesus came in humility. We're so glad that he came in power, and yet that power is used so differently in the kingdom of Christ As we meditate on Isaiah 11, as we think about who the Messiah is and how he works and what his reign looks like, would you show each of us, show us uh, what it would look like to be a good subject of the king? Oh God, we want to be your, your royal subjects. We want to be your royal subjects we, we want to trust you with our lives, submit our agenda and plan and economy and strategy in our personal lives, everything about our lives to you, King Jesus. Help us to do that today as we sing in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.